From the Annals of Thoracic Surgery and the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Surgical Hot Topics series. I'm Tom Varghese, a thoracic surgeon and deputy editor of Digital Media and Digital Scholarship for the Annals. This is a podcast all about the why behind the articles and the issues in cardiothoracic surgery and healthcare, and what are the planned next steps from authors and thought leaders in the field. We're glad that you are here. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Your feedback is appreciated. Please remember, the opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the individuals and not necessarily of SDS. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook, go to sts.org slash eBook. Advocacy is defined as the support or defense of a cause in combination with the act of leadership. In the medical profession, activities related to navigating the system mobilizing resources, ensuring access to care, addressing health inequities, influencing health policy, and creating system change all fall under the general umbrella of the term health advocacy. In today's Beyond the Abstract podcast, we connect with one of the most extraordinary voices in our profession, Dr. Alan M. Spear. Dr. Spear is a cardiac surgeon at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute in Falls Church, Virginia a professor of surgery at Virginia Commonwealth University Innova campus, senior associate director and director of quality and outcomes at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute, and director of the Innova Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, otherwise known as i For the past 30 years, Dr. Spear has dedicated countless hours on legislative and regulatory strategy, as well as healthcare policy issues. He has served in several national leaders leadership roles, including Chair of the STS Workforce on Health Policy Reform and Advocacy, Chair of the STS Council on Health Policy and Relationships, and immediate past Chairman of the Virginia Cardiac Services Quality Initiative, VCSQI, a voluntary consortium working to improve quality of care and contain costs in heart programs in the state of Virginia. His track record of excellence, accomplishments, and service are so notable that he was awarded the Society of Thoracic Surgeons highest award, the 2021 Distinguished Service Award at the recent STS 57th annual meeting. We connect with Dr. Spear today to talk about his most recent article published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery entitled, STS Advocacy Concerning CMS Reduction in the 2021 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule to CT Surgeons. Easily one of the biggest issues that impacts the care of cardiothoracic surgical patients today. We deep dive with Dr. Sphere to find out how he became so involved in advocacy efforts, the potential rationale for the draconian cuts in reimbursement by CMS, 
and how the latest efforts were done in close coordination and collaboration with other surgical societies, as well as the future of advocacy efforts. Join us today as we go beyond the abstract. Hello, loyal listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us on another episode of Beyond the Abstract. Uh, my name is Tom Varghese, and today I have the incredible honor of interviewing uh, one of our leading lights in the field of uh, cardiothoracic surgery. I'm joined today by Dr. Alan Sphere from uh, Innova Fairfax Hospital in uh, Falls Church, uh, Virginia. Uh, Alan, uh, welcome to the show. Tom, what an honor it is to be with you. I've uh, uh, participated in a sum total of one podcast before on a totally separate subject. And so I'm certainly uh, pleased to be able to talk to you and uh, just catch up with you. We don't get a chance. Well, to... well, the good news is that if you've participated in one, that already puts you as a little bit of a content expert. So we're good, <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, so um, today, of course, me. today, of course, we're going to be talking about uh, this re recent article that, uh, that you and your uh, co-authors wrote uh, for the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, uh, uh, especially named STS Advocacy Concerning CMS Reduction in the 2021 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule to Cardiac and Thoracic Surgeons. But before we deep dive into the article, um, our uh, listeners, uh, as well as I, really love origin stories. And uh, your career is quite unique. Um, can you uh, explain to us how you got involved in these advocacy efforts and uh, the track record you've established over the years. Thank you. This may take a, just a minute because uh, I look at our younger uh, surgeons that are really involved and engaged in the both the workforces and the advocacy efforts. And I'm very admiring and, and uh, quite jealous of them and the path that they've taken at such an early part in their career. Uh, many have gone on to get advanced degrees and masters in healthcare policy and additional training and study. My son is one of them. He's a urologic oncologist. And when he was training at uh, to last year, you know, year before in the uh, University of Indiana, he got a master's in healthcare policy. And I don't think I had a lot uh, to do to influence that. I'd like to think I did, but he's really been involved and wants to be uh, uh sort of immersed in this, even though he's in the military. And so uh, I'm an example of a uh, seemingly random events can lead to our lives and practices in a much different path than we'd envisioned. I came to Northern Virginia from the Texas Heart Institute where I trained with Denton Cooley and was with him for four years and was gonna stay there, but was given the opportunity to help expand uh, the starting program here in Northern Virginia. About five years after I came here uh, in 1982, about in the late 80s, the uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital fell on some tough times. They had some uh, uh, tragic outcomes and it led to stopping the program. And the uh, uh, Chief of Naval Operations got involved and he actually called Dr. Cooley and said, uh, given the focus on Bethesda Naval Hospital and its sort of subtitle being the President's Hospital, what would you suggest we do? Who could we bring in? What surgeon would you recommend? And Dr. Cooley had been always one of my greatest supporters. I, I say that humbly because of the weight that it's carried. But he said, well, look, just call Alan Spear across the river. So I went out there uh, and met with the Admiral that uh, was the commanding officer, and they neglected to tell me I would also be interviewing with uh, President Reagan's private physician. 
And I, I think that was probably the most um, aggressive and um, tough interview I've ever had in my life. They, they, they just, the CIA couldn't have gone through your career and you with more of a fine tooth comb and, um, and rightfully so. But the Bethesda was the uh, reason that the Congress and the president and the Supreme Court sought their care because of security primarily. There were excellent doctors there, but you could lock it down. They had a whole cabinet room built there uh, and, and uh, replicated what they had in the White House. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to pass the interview, uh, I think despite perhaps throwing up a little bit, but I got through the interview. And over the subsequent years, we had numerous uh, congressmen and senators uh, because of the, it was cloistered, because they could uh, be uh, under the radar, uh, were given the opportunity of going to Bethesda rather than going to their uh, uh, residence, their formal residence at home. And uh, I got to know many of them. And so they started asking me questions. What did I think about something? And as you know, we're privileged to hold these individuals' lungs and hearts in our hands. And so they sort of uh, project that confidence in you and a myriad of other areas and some of them I could speak intelligibly or, or thoughtfully uh, perhaps and some of the things I didn't have a clue but I would go and research it and come back and speak with them and got to know many of them and their chiefs of staff and um, through that it, it awakened in me a uh, the insight that it's not at all what I'd read. We read so much about how these uh, men and women sort of are always at dinners and traveling these folks work incredibly hard. They're very bright. They study and uh, are so focused on every issue that at least I've been privileged to uh, uh, talk with them about. And I, I got a totally different view of how things work and what we could actually do to participate. And over time, the STS called me and said, hey, by the way, we understand you're involved with this these uh, uh, areas, we have a whole workforce, um, you know, that's dedicated to this. Why don't you join it? And I was oblivious, you know, at the time I was young, like you and I, you know, well, not, I was younger than you and starting my career and trying everything I could. And this just happened to be something that I've been involved with and liked. And uh, then I was the capital physician to be the um, consultant for Congress for cardiac surgery. So I would go down and see these uh, patients there in the Congress where they could again be uh, cloistered and be secured and uh, totally anonymous and nobody knew about their, their illnesses. And it was a fascinating, it has been a fascinating experience. Uh, some is public, much of it, mo most of it is not. And uh, the things I've learned from them is far more than I've been able to contribute to them and their interest in healthcare, which of course is, as you know, is such a huge uh, you know, 18% of our GDP has um, been profoundly impactful. So I'm sorry that that took so long. We love these stories. I mean, I think uh, that that's a, an amazing perspective that uh, I think there was a lot of humility there as well. You, I mean, the way you phrase it as you happen to be in the right place at the right time. But I mean, that's decades worth of work and building on relationships uh, that has really brought a unique perspective. I like the way that you frame things. You are correct. It seems like our younger generations are much more aware. I think our generations were um, 
where the norm was, we put our blinders on and we just look at what's right in front of us. And sometimes we don't do enough of a good job of taking a step back and seeing the bigger picture about all the different aspects that influence our, our clinical practice. Um, but but you're, you're sensing a change though for the better, correct, Alan? And I, I think it's just uh, hugely so. You know, being involved with healthcare policy for uh, in the 90s, in the early part of the 2000s, was like watching grass grow. There was very little that was being changed. There was so much discussion, but, uh, but the, the sustainable growth rate was in place. Nothing was really changing from year to year. There was all this dialogue and angst uh, about uh, treatment models and, and delivery pathways and, and our pol uh, from our politician, but how much was actually done? And I think that as we got into 2010, you know, for the next decade, we started seeing a lot of, of change predominantly because of the aging uh, of our population and the baby boomers were demanding so much care, not only in cardiovascular and thoracic disease of which obviously cardiac uh, disease and thoracic disease with um, ischemic heart disease and lung cancer are, are number one and two causes of death, but uh, just the impact of delivery in general, and particularly the underserved communities, the African-Americans and women, and the lack of being able to take care of these populations became much more of a focus. So we've seen, uh, as a result of so much of this, uh, a microscope put on, not from the politicians, it was a lot about cost, and then from our population, about access to care, appropriateness of care. And so that I think has been a sea change, this demanded action, demanded advocacy and demanded response from our politicians. Using that as a pivot point, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we'll deep dive into the article that uh, you had just recently written. Um, I wanted to read a sentence from the article. Uh, you had said, um, obviously you started off with the perspective of uh, the global pandemic starting in March of 2020. And then uh, you had said that uh, in a prior publication, you, uh, uh, you and the authors had stated that it was noted that in the midst of the ravages of the pandemic, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, had plans to reduce reimbursement for cardiothoracic surgeons by 8% in January 2021. And I think the perspective uh, or the question really comes to the fact that it just seems... We're, we're kind of in this endless cycle now where CMS continues to threat cuts, threaten cuts for uh, reimbursement seemingly on an annual basis. Do you have any perspective of why is CMS doing this? I mean, you had mentioned about healthcare being 18% of the total GDP, but is it really just trying to, they're looking for any and all measures to try to control costs or is it misinformation, ignorance? But what, what is your perspective, uh, Dr. Spear, on why is CMS seemingly on this endless quest of threatening to cut us uh, the reimbursement every year? We've, I think it's all the above. I probably should stop there before I say something about CMS. That's gonna be <laughs> no, that's okay. and this, this may be our last discussion in my career. This may be the, the end of my career. Uh, because so many of those that work at CMS, this is their life. It's not just that a new administration will bring in a new health uh, secretary of health and human services or a new director of 
of the center of Medicare, Medicaid services, but they're for decades now, two, two and a half decades through budget neutrality, uh, we have to consider the impact uh, that has not been adjusted by the way in any, in any way for cost of living. But uh, as, as so many uh, surgical specialties have seen a growth in population demands, reimbursement has been to the detriment of internal medicine family practice. And so, so much of this has to equate, let's say for a hundred dollars uh, is our, is the amount, I don't mean to be sophomoric about this, but you know, 50% goes to one specialty or, or surgery and 50% goes to internal medicine service, uh, services. And over time, as the demand for surgical procedures goes up, what has to happen? The, the inverse has to occur in the medical services. So there's a great deal of sensitivity and there has been uh, cardiac surgeons have been viewed, you know, uh, for, for 40 years, uh, as the prima donnas, as the real top of the mountain, the ultimate, uh, physician and provider, uh, you know, Dr. Cooley and Dr. DeBakey were the ones on the front of life magazine and time. You didn't see a lot of internists on there and that, you know, there's a lot of jealousy, but but rightfully so. I think we have to recognize that there was a disparity and we rode that horse. Uh, the cars, the country clubs, the, just the whole persona was, was, we could have done a better job, let me say it that way, in, in being respectful and supportive across the house of medicine. But be that as it may, uh, it has become, because of the cost of, of employment, you know, the practices across uh, medicine are 1.3 trillion and what we services we, or the practices that we provide, uh, our, employee, our employees, our, uh, what it takes to run our practices. And so uh, that hasn't been at all modified because of the sense of the distribution in the federal budget on on the military, on so many other things, but military is the, the other major hit. And it was projected that in about another 10 years, 49% will be healthcare and 51% will be military. I mean, what sense does this make? My point being is that uh, we just have to be more mindful of what this direction is going. So I think that uh, CMS, for different reasons, a lot of the lobby, because uh, we we're this one of the smallest specialties, right? And with the internal medicine and family practice being hundreds of thousands of providers, their lobby, and of course, their alliance with the American Hospital Association was much stronger than ours. So CMS, uh, in, in the summer of 2019, after they got the SGR figured out and got rid of it, said, you know, beginning in January of 2021, all of surgery is going to be reassessed. All of this is going to be uh, reallocated with increases in the internal medicine and family practice and medical specialties and a decrease in surgery. And uh, I think that we have to recognize that the this was in, in contradistinction to what the RUC had talked about, and the, the, for those that aren't familiar with this, the RUC is the American uh, Medical Association and the surgical specialties uh, gather together and 
and look at what the relative value units are going to be for everyone, for all of the coordinated uh, care delivery pathways. And uh, when the RUC heard about this, they, at a, in a vote of 27 to one said, wait a second, this isn't gonna work. This is not what we think is appropriate. And CMS uh, for the first time said, too bad. We're not gonna take the input from the specialty societies and the AMA. We're going to continue the path and reallocate these funds as we see fit with the reductions as you have alluded to. But that's a dangerous path, correct? I mean, it, it kind of goes against the principles of making informed evidence-based decisions. It, it seems quite arbitrary, correct? I think arbitrary is the word. I, both of us, we're scientists. Everybody listening to this uh, podcast and, and uh, in our specialty are data-driven. We have been and enhanced by the since 1987 in the Society of Thoracic Surgery National Cardiac Database, where those data points drive a lot of our practice. So when you hear the AMA and us, and then the Surgical Coalition, which is a group of 52 surgical specialties that, uh, that the American College helped organize, talk about the faulty data that CMS arrives at the uh, conclusions there's part of us that say, wait a second, you know, yeah, it's always faulty data. Anybody, anytime you don't like a decision, it's, it's the aggregation of the data, the misinterpretation of the data. But on this particular case, I would submit to you that CMS was profoundly, um, I think, uh, adverse to what the facts showed. Just let me give you one or, or, or three uh, examples. First of all, when the, the 2019 report came out, the major surgery from cardiac surgery, the grouping was 18%. The non-surgery work that cardiac surgeons did was 80%. So let's think about that a minute. What they described in, in major and minor surgery have always been a point of be contested, but that 18% of our work is major surgery and 80% is non-surgical work. I mean, does that make any sense to anybody? Whereas in thoracic surgery, major surgery was 75.9% and non-surgery at work was 17.9%. That's the actual figure. So the, what they used to reallocate our work and the amount to be generated for our work was totally inverted from what it should have been. And Tom, let me just be very clear. The whole purpose in talking about compensation, which everybody gets totally through the roof about, that surgeons just care about the money, it really is about the access to care for our seniors, for our patients. When we got involved with this, and the we had three webinars. One was the STS webinar. One was the American College of Surgery webinar. And one was for the Surgical Care Coalition that we can talk about in a few minutes. Up to a third of those surveyed, a third of those in private practice said that if those cuts go through, their practices will close. 50% said if their practices don't close, they're going to have a profound impact on their ability to employ, keep their doors open and, uh, and deliver care as they thought that was appropriate through evidence base. 
uh, delivery. You're, you're looking at a, a third of all surgeons that would end up going under because of these cuts. So imagine in this day and age of demand for cardiovascular and thoracic disease, what that access would, would how that would be impacted. Secondly, in terms of data, um, the, uh, well, of course the STS responded to this uh, proposal this past, because uh, it's all done in the summer in July and August. Uh, the uh, American College of Surgeons also brought out the fact that the uh, evaluation and uh, management codes, the ENM codes, were going to be profoundly impacted. They've been redone for uh, three times over the past 27 years, in 1997, in 2007, and 2011, whereas the outpatient services that's also rolled over into how surgeons are paid in our bundle. You know, our bundle is for 30 to 90 days. It includes preoperative, perioperatively, and postoperative services. So CMS and their wisdom said, okay, we're going to reallocate monies for the standalone EM, uh, ENM codes. We're not going to include that in the global codes. So if you follow me, some providers are going to be paid for the same work differently than the surgical specialties. How that translates is it's not a decrease in eight percent to cardiac surgery and 7% to thoracic surgery, it's actually going to be 13% reduction for cardiothoracic surgery if these cuts went through because of this methodology, which actually, by the way, is illegal. And so again, there's needs to be a period where after CMS puts out these proposed rules, that there will be a response and discussion and a forum for that before it's finalized. That never happened. That was made the final rule this past December uh, 2020. So I know that I've covered a lot of ground here. Purpose was to provide data that when I said it was faulty data that the decisions were made is to show you we've spent an incredible amount of analytic time, assessment time to get into the weeds so we can tell our members and all the surgeons We've done our due diligence, and these are the reasons we're making these statements and why these practices in access to care are going to be so impacted. This is brilliant insight, and, and I love the fact that you got into the weeds because these are issues. I mean, it's, it's devastating, not just financially. It's devastating uh, for communities, for patients. I, I, I just, it just it's 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 almost dangerous uh, in terms of the path that uh, they're trying to embark on. And we're grateful for, for the fact that, you know, the work is being done to push back against this. But I did want to transition towards, you had just mentioned about the Surgical Care Coalition. You know, I think um, as you correctly pointed out, cardiothoracic surgery in, in the grand scheme of things is a small specialty, um, but this was an opportunity where we bridged with the Surgical Care Coalition, which as you correctly pointed out, consists of 52 organizations that were organized by the American College of Surgeons um, under the umbrella of that broad co coalitions. I wanted to get your thoughts on th this process of working with this collaboration and organizing this coalition. Do you think that this is kind of a one-off where it was really dedicated to this specific issue? Or are you kind of sensing that this might be the way, a better way of 
collaborating and negotiating uh, in the years ahead. Uh, thank you for raising this because I think it opens up a, a, a whole separate discussion. Uh, as cardiac surgeons, uh, our whole training has been since we were internist, uh, in, uh, interns to be uh, thoughtful individuals where the attribution and accountability was solely on our shoulders. Although we had a team on all procedures we did, the final, the final accountability was ours. The patients came to us. The, the, we were the ones that talked to the loved ones and we owned it. Those are the, when we talk about a 1% mortality, those 1% of our practices, those faces are the ones we see, not the 99, at least everybody that I know looks at that way. And so many of the decisions we made, it was with our colleagues, but it was pretty insular. Uh, our colleagues are who we trusted primarily and, and not all of those that we worked around. I think that that was a mistake. And as for those that are involved in leadership training and, and really taking those upper level management courses and uh, the team of teams from General McCarran, uh, types of things, we see that no matter what area we're in, we are better with a group than we are by ourselves. I don't know about your uh, institution, but it's probably no different than ours. We used to be a five hospital system that functioned in name only. They were five separate hospitals. Around the pandemic, I have never seen the uh, collaboration better. I've never seen it more cohesive. We made a lot of mistakes, but we also did some phenomenal things because 60% of the COVID patients in the Commonwealth were in our health system. That's, that's a staggering statistic and patient volume to take care of, and it hadn't really gone away. But my point being, we are better served together. We're better served as cardiac and thoracic and congenital surgeons in critical care we're better served with our internal medicine colleagues in working and problem solving. In this particular case, the surgical coalition was the 53 and then the surgical care coalition was about 16 specialties that represented, uh, they were the high volume uh, uh, providers and it was 150,000 surgeons with a contracted with what was called the Brunswick Group to look at the, from a multimedia uh, advocacy, uh, direct patient relationships, uh, TV and, and printed and uh, internet approach to get the word out to the public. Because when you think about doctors, you're too young for this, but you know, it's the Marcus Welby's type of guys. It, you know, it was the internal medicine that were somber and got, as they got grayer, they got more uh, revered. As we get grayer, it's get him out of the operating room, you know, that kind of. But um, <laughs> the Surgical Care Coalition was really to promote what the true impact of the surgical specialties have been in our world, in our country, because it's really not as understood as it could be. And so working with them and seeing how we can all work together with neurosurgery and ophthalmology and American College was has been a uh, unintended consequences of that collaboration. And we found many more areas that we as well could and should be 
paying attention to. Research and critical care is just one of them. But uh, for purposes of answering your question, and I'm sorry I got so off track, or perceivedly so, it's uh, working within the surgical specialties has been one of the highlights of my career just because of the men and women I've gotten to know, hearing what they had to say on issues which were different than ours, but that, that were, were no less weighty. And really paying attention to what people are saying and how we can collaborate around that on all of these areas. The STS has multiple delegates to the Bering College and the Bering College of Cardiology, that kind of thing. But do we really hear back throughout our specialty on what those relationships have fostered and what has been derived with that representation? I mean, I'm sitting on these leadership calls just like you are, and uh, how to convey this information is an overwhelming task that our media relations uh, through the STS has done a, a great job in trying to convey it, but where do we fit? I think our next uh, real challenge, and you've led the way through your social media, is how we communicate better across the surgical specialties and across our own specialty. No, that's incredibly kind of you to say about uh, the communication. Um, I, I do, I, I love the, there was, a, there was a, a reference point that I'd like to kind of as we're wrapping up this interview, really focus in on, um, you know, at the end of the article you had written, um, many challenges remain for the surgical specialties in order to collaborate and coordinate a consistent approach to CMS regarding their future plans for the Medicare physician fee schedule. Uh, continued support and input from all STS members will be necessary to obtain the outcomes and results needed to ensure continued access to the care of cardiac and thoracic surgical patients and maintain the research and education programs so vital to the future of our specialty. Um, uh, Dr. Spear, I think that the question really goes, you've talked about what the specialty has done and what the Surgical Care Coalition has done and the importance of working across different disciplines and branching together. Your advice for all of us on the individual level, what can we as the individual CT surgeon do uh, to help navigate these waters uh, in the years ahead? Thank you for opening up that advocacy door. I, I should have done a better job with that because all politics is local. And I don't think that, that surgeons, particularly cardiac and thoracic surgeons understand how incredibly uh, important their presence has been in healthcare delivery and in their communities. Many of us are leaders within our individual health systems and our hospitals. We're uh, very credible. Uh, I, I say that uh, with some humility because there's a lot of them that aren't. But if we pay attention to our evidence-based approach and speak uh, out, of, out of knowledge rather than just what we think, it's what we know, we've played a huge role in our local areas. And in our, our personalities, the way we're wired, we're involved in our churches and in our communities and in our, in our hospitals. But there have been many individual surgeons that have reached out through the advocacy arm of the STS and had receptions with their congressmen and with their senators in their own, in their own towns, in their own communities. And, and the, this is how the 
you know, the contributions to the political action committee, uh, to the PAC is so important because uh, it's equitably distributed, half to the Republicans, half to Democrats. And it's to those individuals that are advocating for the priorities that our specialty has deemed important. But Tom Varghese could, could just as easily uh, call and set up a reception in July with a picnic and have the congressman or senator come and you invite all your buddies and um, their wives and ask questions. But that's an individual provider on an individual basis. It, you know, whether it's in the fly-ins, when people come, we're gonna do it virtually this year because the pandemic still hadn't been sorted out. So it's contributing to the PAC and all that it serves, getting involved on a local level, getting involved with the advocacy and asking how can I participate is, is going to be the answer to resolve the questions that you have asked and that we've tried to jointly address because a, a core group in the workforce of the Council of Healthcare Policy and Advocacy aren't gonna answer this. We're doomed if that's the perception is let Mikey do it. Mikey can't do it because this, uh, the cuts didn't go away. They got re rolled over to the second quarter of this year. Now, like in two months will be the start of the third quarter, right? So we have to have the help from all of us. This is vitally important. So thank you for asking that question. It's a brilliant answer. And I think that uh, we're hoping for our listeners um, that they realize that this is actually the start of a conversation. I mean, I think that obviously the podcast episode today was really to raise awareness of the issues, but I think I, I couldn't agree uh, more that these are critically important issues. And, and it's not to say that this will be the only issue, but that importance of uh, all of us as surgeons and members of our community to get involved and stay involved. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Dr. Spear, I mean, it's, it's been great to have this opportunity to connect with you today. Um, on, on behalf of all our loyal listeners for the Beyond the Abstract uh, podcast um, and uh, to our membership at, at large, thank you from the bottom of the heart for all the efforts you've done over the decades uh, for this continuing specific uh, quest that you're on right now with the CMS and the physician uh, Medicare fee schedule, uh, but uh, for all the work that you do, thank you from the bottom of the hearts uh, and uh, we look forward to the work ahead. Thank you for the kind words and for allowing me to participate. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you. Join us next time as we continue to explore and debate issues beyond the abstract, part of the Surgical Hot Topic series. You can connect with the Annals of Thoracic Surgery online at annalsthoracicsurgery.org or on Twitter at Annals Thor Surge.